0: Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, John Papa and Ward Bell talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts, John and Ward.
1: Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. Today's topic is open source and experiences with open source with the Angular CLI. And we've got our host, Ward Bell. Hi there. Dan Walline. Hello, world. And we have our guest, Philippe Silva, a good friend of ours. Hey, uh, glad to be here. Philippe is an Angular Tools core member, a lover of homemade pizza, craft beers, and games, and just wins the award for the shortest bio I've ever read on this show and probably ever will read. (laughs) So, thank you, Philippe. (laughs) You're you're most welcome. They like to keep it, you know, short and sweet. That's great. And Ward, we like to kick things off with our mailbag, don't we?
2: We sure love our mailbag. Do
1: you have anybody who's written into us?
2: I dug deep into it today, and I've pulled this one out from somebody named Ariana Grande. Um, she says, I'm on tour a lot and I really get stressed out. I follow Philippe closely and I wonder how it is that he copes with people who are not always polite in their critique of my work. And I'm wondering what he does when they're not so polite for him.
3: Huh. Adriana Grande. I did not expect that. Thank
1: you. <laughs> we are full of it on this show. Aren't we, Ward? <laughs> yes, we are. Okay. I, I can talk a bit
3: about that. Um, I can say that that was actually one of my biggest fears, uh, when I was faced with the prospect of, uh, actually being a, a, like a real presence, a real name and, and um, like in an issue tracker for a project that was getting bigger. And that kind of like that idea stressed me out that people were going to be like really mean, really unpleasant, have, uh, unrealistic demands. Uh, criticize my work, that they were just generally that there were going to be there, these very unpleasant interactions. And I don't think that fear is actually realistic. Um, I think it's it's one of those fears that one has when they're thinking about uh, actually being exposed. Uh, it never actually happened in a couple of years working on this project that maybe it happened once that someone was being unpleasant, uh, but it's not a thing. And open source people are really nice. Overall, like they might have problems and they, they're they trying to get their problems sorted. Uh, but generally, I've never had anyone be really unpleasant with me.
1: Now, are you, are Philippe, are you talking about people on the team that you're working with, specifically the Angular CLI, or are you talking about people who file issues and pull requests? Everyone. Everyone.
3: Like people on the issue tracker, people that I work with, people that I meet at conferences. Like, like the worst that, that's happened is someone being really frustrated frustrated with something on an issue and like just blurting it out that you know this shouldn't happen you should test things better or whatever but you know that's <laughs> that's actually not being that unpleasant that fear of being out there and, and people being mean to you I don't think that happens that much at least it didn't to me.
2: Well I think in part it, it's the demeanor you bring to it because you are relentlessly optimistic, relentlessly helpful, relentlessly positive and I, I, those are um no matter what somebody says. And I think that's a winning formula.
4: I would agree because having seen you all over in the issues and responding and possibly even to me at some point, I would agree with Ward. I think it has a lot to do with you just had kind of an upbeat attitude and a very helpful, you know, attitude. And uh, to be honest, that's I won't say it's rare, but it's in some
1: repositories it's a little bit rare. So good job. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree there. What I don't agree with you is I don't agree because my experience has been there are people in open source who are sometimes unpleasant to deal with. And it's maybe not necessarily their intention to respond that way, but sometimes you'll get a comment. It's almost like a, I call it the feeling of entitlement where they feel like this is free software. How dare you not make this feature work the way I exactly I wanted it to, even though I never told you this before. Um, but the way that you respond to them, I think, is kind of like the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And I think if more people did that, it'd be great.
3: I wouldn't say that that's why I do it, like why I act in this or that manner. Um, there's actually been like a, a few cases where uh, I thought that people were being that entitled. Um, and through continuous interaction with, in this, in this specific case, uh, like a specific person, that I thought this person was just being extremely entitled uh, they just wanted everything to just work. And I kind of realized, and, and people on my team told me this, Igor and Hans stressed this out, which is you lose a lot uh, in the medium, which is communication over issues on Git, GitHub, or like just written communication. Um, you don't actually know what the person in, in front of you is feeling. They're not in front of you. Like there's a lot of communication that's nonverbal. So when you just see these things written, You kind of try to imagine how it's actually coming through, but that might not be real at all. Like there's so much loss, for instance, in translation, non-native speakers, people that when they write things, they come across as uh, more curt than they actually are. Uh, All of that kind of piles together. And sometimes when you, like you, me, whoever is doing this, um, approaches that, that like the issue tracker and looks at it and is already like in, in a, less than great mood, that kind of just gets reflected back. So uh, what I end up doing is whenever I read something and I I feel that I'm putting kind of like a a stern face on myself, I'm kind of like, huh. Uh, I kind of try and imagine what's what's the best version of what's being said here. And I try to reply to that uh, because... Like, if there's any point to be made here, if there's anything important to be had from from this interaction, uh, let's try and address the like the best version of this interaction, rather than the lossy interaction that I'm actually experiencing, rather than how how I'm actually feeling about doing this. Maybe I've been doing this for a bunch of hours, maybe maybe uh, I'm stressed out. Maybe I don't understand this problem and just want to get over it. No, let's let's try and make like if this was an ideal interaction about this topic, how would it feel like?
1: I, I like that. And I often tell people when they're about when you especially when you get something and you're you're emotional about it, instead of just pausing and thinking, think this. What is the outcome you want from this interaction? Do you do you want to be right? Do you wanna I mean what is it you want? Do you, or do you want some kind of change to happen and try to envision that change and figure out how can you get inside that and make it work? Uh, I also look at the the hiring side of things. I tell people you know hiring practices, one of the things I like to look at and I like to portray my own is if somebody's looking at my GitHub repos, I hope they're not just looking at the code. I hope they're also looking at how do you behave and interact with other teammates and colleagues and people in the community by looking at issues and pull requests and how you communicate because I want to work with somebody who can work with other people. Kind of like you, uh, Philippe is a is a model in that. I agree, as far as I'm concerned, he's he's always the person who's like that. Yep.
3: Well, like I, I, I'm very like embarrassed because uh, hearing hearing specifically you three say that it kind of means a lot to me because when I was growing as a professional, uh, you you three you specific you three you were very big names and still are big names in the industry. Like and I've learned a lot from you three. So being here talking about these things with you. Uh, like feeling that some of the things that I've learned over the years are, are are like are valuable things, are things that, you know, have brought me a certain measurement of success and understanding with other people of the community.
1: Well, thanks. But but I have to tell you, the reason we did that is to butter you up. So now we're going to hit you with, why didn't you fix my feature I wanted? Exactly. Now. Come <laughs> That's on.
2: It. Here we go. That's the setup. That was a long setup. But here it is. I got I got to
4: tell you. What's wrong with that? See, a lot. No,
3: I will take all challengers. I have reasons. I thought a lot about things.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, uh, well, I think we all, number one, appreciate that. Thank you. But honestly, uh, I think we, all three of us, and pretty much everyone listening that's involved, like you said, John, I think that's an excellent point. You know, the way you do interact with an issue or a feature request or whatever it may be, it kind of leaves a fingerprint, if you will. For future hiring, because, you know, that's all out there. And, you know, the more you can get your point across without coming across as a complete, uh, you know, politically correct, uh, not nice person is a good thing. Because like you said, that's I don't want to work with someone who, you know, finds an issue and then freaks out about it you know, we all want to work with people who find an issue and then offer here, here's how I can help. Or, you know,
1: here's the issue. And let me give you as much details, even though I don't think I can help. And Philippe, how do you, how do you attack like the real problems of these open source projects? I mean, you work on a big open source project with Angular and the Angular CLI and lots of people use this. Uh, I think the numbers I heard from Brad Green recently were over a million people using Angular. Uh, and with a project that large, I imagine things like performance have to be really big in your minds. How do you deal with that when you've got that many people relying on your software?
3: Okay, performance is a big one. Before performance, there's obviously stuff generally working. And then when they generally work, it's important that they work up to a certain threshold. So for me, a big part of actually getting a project that's reliable and making it work is like testing all throughout. Performances, I feel it's hard to test uh, because Angular CLI itself, it it, uh, it creates projects. So at at the ends, I don't actually know what you're running. I imagine that you're running something, you know, with these parameters, etc. But I don't know what exactly is the code that you're running, uh, and that presents a large large challenge in moderating and uh, keeping performance up to standards. So we're actually trying to improve our testing of performance and benchmarking certain classes of projects, making sure that we're always delivering at least like this, this rebuild time. Um, we generally try to optimize for up to medium projects because large projects, uh, like the, the current setups we feel aren't, aren't very good for delivering high performance. And by performance here, I specifically mean build times and rebuild times, stuff like, basil that probably you've, you've heard about and there's like some kind of mystique and some kind of uncertainty about it's supposed to deliver that sort of performance and the, the techniques that it uses to actually do that is something that I, I don't really see in most uh, things that we have available on, on the basejs ecosystem um, but to like to give you an example of what trying to figure out performance, uh, to me usually entails is performance usually isn't defined by the general case. When people have problems with performance, it's usually some kind of corner case, most of the time. So it's it's a lot of it is trying to figure out what went wrong in, in their scenario. Um, and that involves a lot of debugging, like with the node debugger, um, and a lot of what I usually just call spelunking. Because I, I don't know about you all, but like when, when you pull out the debugger, are are you absolutely sure of what you're going to find out?
1: No. No. <laughs> no, usually it's just error in a big, long call stack. <laughs>
2: yeah. You know, I've seen these flame charts, and all I do is, like, I want to get marshmallows, but I don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask Philippe, like, what does he do? Because I've seen you look at a flame chart. and um, What do you do?
3: I'll tell you what. When you saw me looking at a flame chart... I think it was roughly five days after I figured out that I had to understand what was happening there.
1: <laughs> Good, I'm not alone here.
3: <laughs> no, no, I, I think those things are, I had this notion that everyone was uh, was extremely proficient in, in these debugging tools, whereas me, was, I was just putting a lot of console logs everywhere. I approach that, that, that whole thing. It's like trying to use the, the debugger and like the flame charts and the, and the performance logs. I went into it thinking, I'm clearly the underdog here. I don't understand any of this. So I, I already went through that, like, let me attack this problem. So I open it up and I just see a bunch of stuff that I don't understand. I, and I think that I spent like 10 minutes trying to figure out what the hell is this happening here. And after the, those 10 minutes, it's, it's a lot of what I call uh, investigative work. It's like you're following clues. It's like, oh, okay, so this took a long time. So let me click into it. Clicking into it gave me nothing. Let me try and click. Maybe there's another way to view this information. Uh, maybe, maybe I can like, use an, another, another display here. There's a couple of options here to the left. There's a couple of options here to the, to the right. Let me see what I can do. And it, it's like everything. After, after you spend a couple of hours trying to dig into it, you kind of understand it a little bit better. But at, at the end of the day, it's kind of just like you, you take your intellect and you kind of apply it to a problem like a hammer until you get a couple of results. And then maybe you refine that approach.
1: But that's how it starts. Let me take a quick pause here as we pause for our sponsor.
2: Today's podcast is sponsored by NativeScript, a free and open source JavaScript framework for building truly native iOS and Android apps with NativeScript. You code in JavaScript or TypeScript using the popular frameworks Angular and Vue to leverage the power of native APIs and UIs. NativeScript is a lot like React Native, but for Angular and Vue. With NativeScript, you use the tools and techniques you already know, like CSS and NPM, to build native apps for multiple platforms from a single code base. Check it out at nativescript.org slash and get started with NativeScript today using just your web browser and a smartphone.
1: We're back with Real Talk JavaScript, and we're talking with Philippe Silva about real-world open source and his experiences on the Angular CLI team. Philippe, we are just talking about flame charts and, and performance and how you guys deal with that on the team. Is there an example or some place you can point people to in like how you evaluate those? Like, How does somebody learn more about what to do with a flame chart?
3: Click it click like if you have a in, in the case of performance you're trying to do something like oh I started recording now you know and something happened and I want to see how how what what time is being spent here and then you stop recording and that's how you get started um, and like the the Mozilla pages about uh, the node debugger are great uh, there's like a couple of of repositories that might help you with that but at the end of the day it, you're just you're using the node debugger you're connecting it to chrome and you're trying to get a couple of charts that you can read later. As long as you can record something, you're grand.
2: You're saying that there's no really great resources out there to learn how to do this. It's just uh, feel your way forward. Is that the current state of things?
3: When I was trying to look for ways to properly debug performance, I couldn't find anything amazing. But part of that is, is really because debugging performance kind of takes you back to the fundamentals of, of how computing works in general. <laughs> At the end of the day, time is being spent inside a certain scope, being be it a function, being like a program, um, anything. And you're trying to figure out how much time is being spent in each. And in specific, the node one, uh, it will give you time spent per function, or it will give you stuff like uh, how much memory was allocated for objects and sometimes what kind of objects they were. Uh, but, on anything that 's big enough that you care a lot about its performance and we 're talking about minutes, you have to imagine that thousands of functions are going to be invoked right it 's very specific to to the program that you 're debugging, and at the end of the day, all, all you want to know is where is my time being spent? what are the functions that are spending most of the time in this program, and then you take it from there and then you kind of just do some basic stuff like well, what if what happens if I just kind of comment out most of the content of this function and run this again it 's very iterative it 's it's very, like, you have to understand that, you know, there's, there's a function that allocates a certain piece of memory, takes certain time to run. If it runs asynchronously, then maybe this time is being occupied in a way that's not so obvious, stuff like that.
2: Sounds painful. When do you decide to do it and when not? When, you know, and think about a regular developer, like, like, oh, say me. What is the trigger that says, okay, it's time to go in? It's,
3: it's when something is taking way longer than you want, and you want to know why. It's, it's that simple question. And in the case of the CLI, we're talking about things like, so if someone tells me, if I try to rebuild my application and it takes one minute, that's that obviously, that's a lot of red flags.
1: Yeah, let's make that concrete. So recently, I can't remember which version it was. It was an upgrade. Uh, maybe it was to version six for all I, I can remember. Uh, NG build used to take four seconds and that was taken 15. Yeah. I remember people talking, I remember the numbers were, but I remember people talking, it's taking longer to build than it should be. How do you deal with that?
3: I go and find out why. Uh, like I go and find out wh- what's what's taking so long. And often it's it's things like um, maybe the processing of JavaScript modules is taking a long time. And I, I figure this out because I'm looking at, at these charts that say this function is taking so long. And the only thing I know is the name of the function.
1: Do you have profiling tools that are built into the CLI that people can run to that will help you so they can give you more information?
3: We, act, I added one of those probably like a couple of days ago where we're looking to land that for seven uh, and see how that helps in those scenarios, for instance. Uh, other than that, we don't have any, any good profiling tools built into the CLI, but we've also landed a benchmarking tool that we're, we're starting to use internally when we want to figure out what's happening, like a benchmarking tool that, for instance, does five builds and then takes the average and then with just, like, one enter. Stuff like that. Because repeating this is often really hard, and it's really hard to get good data.
2: So I want to go kind of, you know, I want to take this and I want to go in a a slight different question, which is still a performance-related thing. I know you've been really deeply involved in how it is that, they you know, the Angular figures out lazy loading and stuff. And I've been, you know, like, the, the word is, hey, lazy load everything. So I'm doing it, but I can't for the life of me know whether it's actually making a difference at all. So tell us, does lazy loading actually do anything or is it just one of those dances that we're told we have to do?
3: Okay. I can answer that. It does. And I can tell you, I, I can tell you how and why from my side of things. So from the build system side of things, instead of having one giant bundle, the main bundle that would have easily on some applications like two megabytes, you end up having a bunch of smaller ones. Uh, and that really helps, especially if you can move the big payloads onto the smaller bundles. Because it's, if, you, if we consider like the three megabyte example or two megabytes, if you can actually get that down to one megabyte, you might think, oh, well, that's just half. That's not a big difference. It actually is a big difference because when you're waiting, when you're on in the internet and waiting for something to load, your patience isn't linear. You're like, oh, well, this took 10 seconds. It's twice as bad as taking five seconds. No, it gets out of hand really fast. So like just from a transfer side of things, that's very big because most of the time that you spend waiting for something to load on your browser, it's either because it's like doing heavy computing or you're just waiting for code to arrive. And the less code you can get to, to be transferred, the faster it is. Like having a snappy experience is not to be underestimated.
4: The way people feel about that is huge. Let me actually just tag on real quick and to another question I get a lot is, so, you know, oftentimes you don't know if they're necessarily hitting your, your default route, or, you know, your homepage route, whatever you want to call it. So do you normally recommend we, we eager load the uh, home part or just make everything lazy when we define all the routes with the load children? Or do you really see much of a difference there? And again, I'm talking more about apps where like a line of business app where you're not really sure where the users are going to start because they've already been to other parts of the app a lot.
3: That, that's a tough one. Um, well, you always know that they're going to to load the, the basic thing you give them to load. So obviously that's it that, That's a yeah, not,
4: Yeah, a that part's question. a given. Yep.
3: Uh, but other than that, that's that's the kind of thing that you measure and then you decide, because you kind of can't know otherwise. You can, you can hypothesize that a lot of people use this route, but at the end of the day, you don't know. Uh, there's actually there's been a couple of tools that popped up that kind of like a uh, statistically analyze the the traffic that you're getting and then suggest uh, you to eagerly load this or that route. But that's always very specific to your application and it depends heavily on your server and the type kind of stuff that you're. Uh, using to track things on your side.
1: Yep, makes sense. Philippe, you work remotely, right? Like, where do you live? I I live in um, Dublin, Ireland. I'm Portuguese, but I... No, no, no. I want your exact address so I can come visit you. everybody on the podcast and <laughs> come You want to come visit me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I want, you to, I I want you to cook for me. <laughs> I will cook for you. I will cook you pizza. I love cooking pizza. I would be taking that up. So you're, you're in Ireland, and most of the Angular team is in Mountain View, California? Yes. That's a big difference, right? I mean, how do you, how do, you do all that with uh, remote working?
3: I'll actually, It's actually one step further than that. Uh, out of the whole Angular team, for, for the most, most part, we all live in different places. Um, everyone that's been working on the CLI team so far, uh, with very few exceptions, we've always been distributed, and we've always been in different time zones. The Angular team deals with that extremely well. They're really communicative. Uh, and between us, because this is a team of, of people that, that all, they're all working by themselves remotely. It's, it's a lot about getting good communication and, uh, being, being very independent. You need to be able to, one, busy yourself and two, go fetch whatever you need. Like if, if you need help from someone, uh, and like that help isn't magically coming through, well, it's not magical help. You, you need to go talk to people. You need to go get the information that you want. And then you need to be able to act upon it uh, by yourself for long stretches of hours. Because, like, if I need something on my morning, everyone else sleeping, right?
2: Except me. I'm waiting for you, Philippe.
3: (laughs) And if they need something from me, like they they might be communicating like my midnight. I might feel like doing that, but I might feel like being in bed.
2: Um, One of the things that was running in my head is is actually that you're up a lot. I think that working remote, one of the things that's probably true is that that when you have an organization that works remote, uh, people aren't working nine to five.
3: Oh, no. That I I actually value immensely. Back when... uh, Back when I was working with you, John, uh, with you, John and, and Ward on the on the dock, I was actually doing a U.S. schedule. I woke up at like my 2 p.m. and I went to bed whenever I felt like it. Oh, my. <laughs> I tried Yikes. that for a while. It was actually fine. I, I love working during the night. Um, but eventually I, I got tired of doing that and I just started doing back my whatever normal European schedule. And my wife understands this, that I work whenever I feel like it. But it's also extremely liberating. If if you if you feel like taking a pause and going to the gym in the middle of the day, that's fine. Uh, if you feel like you're not particularly inspired, because sometimes you're doing work and it's kind of like um, you're trying to kind of like get those updrafts of inspiration. You're trying to get those really productive, deep work sessions that you can get a lot done. And the idea that you have to do it on a nine-to-five, I feel it's kind of ridiculous for for creative work. I'm
4: going to have to agree with you. (laughs) It's
3: really hard to get those times, right?
4: Yeah. Everybody has different uh, ways they work. And, you know, it sounds like you kind of have your pattern down and obviously you're very effective at it. So I agree with you.
3: I think it's a good day whenever you can get some like two to three hours of really enthusiastic work.
1: So let me throw some numbers at you. 383 contributors. 1309 open issues and almost 20,000 stars on just the angular CLI repo itself not angular but the CLI that's a lot of people interacting with this entire team and the repo itself is like uh, it's like the hub for all the work that you do so I imagine you've got a lot of real stories and experience that you can share on good practices for managing a repo this large and also maybe some things that you uh, could share with us that maybe haven't gone so well with that.
2: Yeah, a thousand issues. That's got to, You know, what do you? How do you even stare at that? What do you do?
1: Okay,
3: okay. Um, the number of issues is is a it's a really hard number to keep down, especially as as more things go up.
1: And by the way, there's seven thousand eight hundred closed issues. So, in perspective, that's not so bad either. Yeah. But keep going.
3: But it's a daunting number, right? You look at it and you think, I'm never going to be done with this. Like, not today, not tomorrow, not a year from now. Um, and when, when you start seeing those those big numbers it's uh, as far as issue triage is concerned it's when you start thinking I, I need to I need to let some I, I can't actually do everything I need to choose what I'm actually going to do and what I'm actually not gonna do right now uh, what I wish I can do in the future and what what maybe like the best that I can do is I can keep this open maybe someone else will pick it up so kind of like Getting into the mindset that you're not good, like, if it's too much, you don't actually have to do every single thing that's here, but you definitely have to do the important ones. So, sorting it out, trying to figure out what's important, trying to figure out what's not as important, trying to figure out what affects a lot of people, getting like this sense of being able to read one of these issues and being immediately able to realize. This is very important. Stop everything. We need to talk to the team like this is a big problem. How did this happen?
2: Do you have a routine? Do you set aside an hour in the day where everybody goes through and says, "Okay, let's sift through and find the big ones? How do you manage it?
3: Well, we've gone through various different ways of managing it. The way that we do right now is that we have this like separated procedure. Um, So this only really works for teams that have a certain number of people, which is. The person that's doing caretaking duty.
1: What's caretaking duty there?
3: Okay. Caretaking duty is uh, doing initial triage of issues. So putting a couple of labels that just kind of describe, oh, this looks like it, it belongs to this feature area, or this looks like it belongs to the other feature area. And that's also the person that's responsible for doing releases.
2: And that's a rotating position, right? I mean, among the team, you don't designate the permanent caretaker. Yeah. Everybody has to take the job, which I think is actually a, a good thing because you don't just load it on one person and make them the mortician.
3: Yeah, that's really important. Like at some times in the past, right now, the caretaking position here is it's kind of light in the sense that you never do anything that's very deep, like Although you have to figure out what's kind of like the functional area that this issue belongs to, you don't have to figure out exactly how bad it is or, or whatever. Uh, but at, at, at times in the past, there was like a caretaker that did most things. And that was, a, that was really responsible for saying how, how what it is, how bad it is, evaluate this for everything that was coming through. And that was really, that was too much. Like you get very nervous. You, you think, I don't actually understand this functional area. Uh, I, I don't know how to classify this. And that's kind of like too much pressure. And that doesn't work very well.
2: Just to help the audience. So everybody takes a turn and, in the, and a turn lasts about a week. And then and when you're the caretaker, you don't have uh, development responsibility. Is it kind of like that?
3: No, because this this time being caretaker is so light. That's the kind of thing that maybe you're in like half an hour to one hour each day. Because you just have to say this, like this belongs into, for instance, this belongs into the CLI or this belongs into one of the other projects in the CLI repo called schematics, etc. And then you just move on.
1: So you're basically categorizing. Is that kind of summing it up? Yeah. Okay. Using like GitHub labels and other tools? Yeah.
3: So you just categorize it like lightly initially. And then people that are responsible for that functional area, whenever they have time, uh, they go and try to assess like how bad is this? We call, we call that severity um, and how frequent it is. Like, does this happen to a lot of people? Because sometimes you have things that's like, this burned down my house.
1: <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I
3: was working right beside the pile of wood and, you know, something catastrophic, uh, but it only happens, like, very infrequently. Hopefully,
1: Little no did house. you know, everybody listening, that Angular CLI, when used improperly, should not be used <laughs> near anything flammable. Oh, near that's right. right <laughs> Keep away from open flames, burning down the house. Or just keep it away from Ward, because you know what he, he can do. So. It, it. <laughs> he'll, he'll do it just to play with it.
3: Yes, he abuses these systems. It's, it's
1: very responsible of you, Ward. Philippe, I got to ask you, I'm looking at the Angular repo, and they have something enabled in GitHub that the Angular CLI repo does not, and that's the project boards. Uh, the Angular team seems to use them in some cases and not in others. I'm curious what your experience is with GitHub project boards and why you do or don't use them.
3: We tried using them for a while, like two years ago, uh, but we didn't. We didn't find a lot of use for it. It felt kind of like a chore because in, in normal GitHub flow, it's like you open issues, you create PRs for them, and then it closes. And sometimes, to actually add a bit more context to that, it felt like you had to be doing stuff twice. It had to, like, you felt like you were, you know, opening an issue, putting your name on it, going to the project board, going to put it in, and in progress or whatever and then we like we never really got on board with using it and just some people using it and others not not using it it's not very useful
2: i know i remember uh, trying to uh, foster that and try and get it going and for people who don't know that sort of like they have swim lanes and you kind of move issues across them and try and categorize them visually and yeah but it was a lot of work it was a lot of shuffling paper and organ well not paper but you know what i mean
1: well, I think you have to have something, right? So you have to have something that organize them. I wouldn't say the project boards are entirely useless because if you have some way to manage them, then great, got more power to you. But what would be daunting to me is to look at you know five thousand issues, a thousand issues, and go, where do I start if I had no tools? So that brings me back to I'm not really picturing from you all how how do you take and look at those one thousand issues and decide which ten or twenty or whatever the number is you're going to work on each. Uh, iteration
3: okay we we do have some tools like right now we're we're using uh, jira separately uh it, it's it's a very famous project management tool but even then we don't have everything listed there. how we actually do that decision which is if you already assume that you have to prioritize some things then it's kind of a question of what's your criteria for prioritizing it. As long as you can assign those things, like the important things by which you, you prioritize things, then you just go in. it's like, what's what's at the top of the priority? Uh, and that's why we categorize things by severity and frequency. Whatever high, has higher joint severity and frequency, that's what you should be doing right now as far as bug is concerned.
2: Have you ever considered just going through and saying anything older than two months I'm just closing it. That's how what I do with my email.
3: <laughs> we have considered that. I get that sentiment. But an open issue is better than a closed issue, which in turn is better than no issue at all. Because if if I go and I have a problem in any repository and I go look for like the error message or whatever, and absolutely nothing comes up that's open, uh, I can still look at closed. Okay? But it's better if it's open, because a lot of people won't look at closed. They'll, they'll think, well, if it's closed, then you know, surely it's sorted. And they'll just open a new one. And like this idea that we haven't had time to look at this, but this is an open issue that we'd like to address, this is important. Like it, Just because you think that you're not going to be able to address that anytime soon, uh, maybe things will change. Maybe this is part of a, a bigger story that's more important now than it was like two months ago. Maybe Maybe someone... Wants to pick this up, and no one's looking for, for closed issues to say work that they could done. They could do. They just they, if you have something on the open issues that they could tackle and they have some time. Maybe they'll try and help.
2: Them. I like it. Yeah. Maybe personally, I'm I'm leaning towards if I haven't looked at it in a couple of months, I'm not going to look at it. And uh, and if it's really still an issue, somebody will say, "Why did you close my issue?" Or they'll bring it up and they'll create a new issue, and that's cool. If it's they create a new issue, that's great. But the idea of staring at a thousand open issues, uh, I find it mind blowing. But that's why we're having the conversation is like, how do people handle it? Me, I, I just say, yeah, hey, you know. I, I just erase them not erase them close them. but that's that's different <laughs> <laughs> that's, that. now we know what happens when right? we know zero. Why zero. Uh, uh, word. yeah exactly that's, <laughs> why yeah, the, uh,
3: that's why your projects have no problems <laughs> <laughs> that's why exactly
2: that's why it always looks like I have problem free code
4: because you just erase them I like it yeah let me ask real quick because uh, you've mentioned I mean this is a lot of work obviously to you talked about prioritization and severity and frequency so you know, at some point, and I think you said, has it been about two and a half years you've been involved with I this? I think is so, that right? yeah. Something like that? So how do you, uh, I mean, you obviously have a very upbeat and positive attitude, and I love it, by the way. But uh, for, you know, I have seen a lot of open source projects out there just over the years where my guess is the fatigue of constantly keeping up, you know, kind of gets to people and a little bit of a slowdown on some of them. So how do you keep from, uh, or what techniques would you recommend to people for kind of avoiding that burnout of handling that?
1: Dan, that's a great question. Before you answer that, Philippe, let's go to our sponsor.
2: Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it, and maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRX Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at That's info at ideablade.com.
1: And now back to the show. We're back with Real Talk JavaScript. And Philippe, we were just about to ask you, how do you handle or what kind of advice do you have for handling JavaScript fatigue in the open source world?
3: That's a good question. I think it's important to realize that this whole thing about going for an issue tracker, that's real work. Uh, it's, it's not as if it's this minor thing that uh, you should be able to do very quickly, that it shouldn't, like it should be, no overhead on on your kind of uh, project. It's not like that. It's real work. It's going to take time. It's going to take brain power. It's an investment. It's not as if you know it's magically done very quickly. So once you realize that that's real work and that's a part of the work, that makes it a bit easier to realize that if you're burning out, and if this wasn't just the issue tracker, which supposedly isn't a big thing, how would you deal with that? Like, everyone burns out uh, when they're doing too much work. Everyone burns out when they're when they're faced with, like, the big uncertainty. And, like, trying to figure out why you're burning out and to actually get to the core reasons of why that happens is important. For instance, it, like, the issue tracker c- scenario, I think it's not very clear, but sometimes that feeling of, uh, oh, the overbearing issue tracker, like, the impotence to deal with this has to do... With the diversity of problems that are presented. And the idea that you have to like dedicate a good 10, 15, 20 minutes reading through this, trying to understand it, getting an answer out, communicating with this person, uh, trying to have like an interesting and, and relevant and productive exchange. When you think that this isn't real work, it's very easy to burn out. When you assume that this is a real thing that you need to invest in, if you if you want to have this back and forth and that it should be treated like any other kind of work and that if you're getting frustrated, then you need to figure out why. I think it becomes a lot easier when people expect issues to be responded like very quickly or they expect issues to be acted upon when there isn't enough information, uh, when that all, all of that dynamic isn't very fluid, that contributes to the burnout. So you as a maintainer, you have to think, I'm maintaining this project. What can I do? How can I make this more fluid? How can I manage my own finite reserve of willpower and time and energy to manage this the best that I can? Once you realize that's not in, all, that all of that is not infinite and this is real uh, draining work, I think you're in a much better position not to, not to burn out.
4: That's great. Excellent. Thank
2: you. Yeah, and you have to share it. I think the key is you have to share it. It can't be the only thing you do. And so having a a community of maintainers, which you guys have kind of built, trading off on caretaker and moving the stuff around and having conversations, that would seem to me to be pretty important to making it feel like not just work, but like it's part of why you did it in the first place.
3: When you realize that you're spending so much time in this that it's getting to you, like, yeah, taking some time off, handing it off to the other person not just taking it all upon yourself to spend several hours a a day reading about how your thing sucks or your thing doesn't work properly or it's all broken like when you look at it that way if you're spending that much time doing that yeah it's very likely that if it's all you it's going to get to you
1: philippe at the end of our show we'd like to do a segment called someone to follow and this is where each of us picks somebody in the community who has touched us in some way or inspired us to do something, we may feel that that person needs to be followed or some work that they did. And I know we could all probably point to you because we have a lot of respect for the work you've done, but in fairness to the rest of the community, I'm going to start with picking Sarah. I believe her last name is Vieira. Sarah Vieira. And on Twitter, she's FTW for the win, and I'll put that in the show notes. I don't know Sarah personally, but she's a Twitter friend, and she's impressed me with a couple of blog posts she's written recently. And one of them was called "The Dark Side of Conferences," and it's a great post. I'll put a link to it here in the show notes. But she's amazing at uh, sharing JavaScript community resources. Uh, she's a good speaker. I've seen her on the internet do this. She's a developer advocate, or avocado is the <laughs> the word people are using these days. Um, but out there, she's just done a lot of great work, and I highly recommend people read her post on the dark side of conferences. It's a uh, it's a great. Very uh, vulnerable and honest look into her psyche at conferences, and I actually really can commiserate with that. I I agree. When I go to conference, a lot of times, a lot of her points I can really relate to. I don't like drinking all night or going to the party, the after party, and the after after party, and trying to be on for you know twenty four hours a day. Uh, It's draining, and for me, I need that recharge time. And I think she's got some good stuff there. So check out Sarah Vieira. Dan, who's your person to follow? So I'm going to do a little offbeat one
4: here because, as you know, John and Ward, I spend a lot of time, you know, once you get your JavaScript apps ready to go, you got to put them somewhere and run them. So I spend a lot of time in the Docker and Kubernetes world as well. And uh, a guy that, well, if you're in this world, you'll have heard of him. But if not, that if you're interested in a lot of just phenomenal info, in fact, he even has a a new book out I saw, uh, his name is Brendan Burns. He's the Kubernetes co-founder, actually. His Twitter alias is Brendan, D-A-N, Brendan D. Burns, B-U-R-N-S. I'm kind of wondering if the guy ever sleeps because he has like so much great info and he's at conferences all the time and he's a busy guy, but uh, lots of great info. If you're kind of to that stage where you you know, you want to get more into how do we actually get our apps running in different like cloud environments and things like that.
1: Ward, who is your person to follow? Well, we've talked today
2: a little bit about how important it is to fill in the rest of your life. And I'm going sideways here with somebody I saw speak the other day, Annie Griffiths. She's a National Geographic photographer. And, you know, they have great, good photographs there and photographs drive story and they've got great photographers. But she struck me for.
1: She struck you? What did you do? (laughs) Are you, are you well, Ward? I am very well. Should this surprise us, Ward? Oh God!
2: I want to say that this was one of the revelations in my life. Watching her, I realized her photographs and her talk about them. I realized how we are not used for one thing. That was there was a high, a high percentage of family-oriented photographs and about the joy of family in tough situations. Even in a refugee camp, she's not showing flies all over starving people. She's showing people. Uh, surviving and, and making, uh, making a world in tough circumstances. And there were a lot, there was this brightness to the humans there. And there was at least 80% of the photographs were of women and families. And insights into communities that I, as a guy, can't see. But I realized we don't see these pictures. Most of the pictures we normally see of women are like models and, you know, trying to sell goods and things like that. This was just people. And I think if you have a taste for great photography that means something, check out Annie Griffiths. Awesome.
1: And Philippe, who would you like to say for someone to follow?
3: There's someone that I I would recommend to be followed, but to be honest, I'm, I'm not that sure if... Uh, if maybe this is a person that everyone knows, I, I don't know. I, I'm not too good with having that notion, uh, but the person anyway is Dr. Uh, Axel Rauch Mayer. I think that's how its name is pronounced.
4: Yeah. Oh yeah. Great. Uh, great post. His blog, uh, duality,
3: like a two and Um I've learned so much there. I feel for me, uh, I, I'm very impatient. Uh, the way things are delivered, it's, it's delivered very objectively. It's like, this is how you do this. And then like a code example, and, and rarely you have a post that's very long. Um, and I feel like it's delivered in the exact way that makes a lot of sense to me. So I look at what he does, and I think, geez, I I wish I could uh, write uh, educational material that well. I It's just presented in a way that goes directly to my brain.
1: That's great. If you could give us a link to his blog, uh, we can put it in the show notes for afterwards.
2: Sure, thank. He is one of the greats. I wanted to say he is that guy. Really, is one of
1: the greats, Philippe. We want to thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure sure. to talk with you today, especially after working with you for many years with Angular. And I think from all of us, I want to say uh, we really thank you for being on the project. We feel like the project has benefited from not only your your technical expertise, but also your your great personality and gentle touch with the community. Absolutely.
3: I thank you immensely, but I have to say that. You guys are are like were the shining stars that I was following. And I really wanted my work to be like your work. That's how I felt. And I still feel.
1: It's good to hear. Thanks. And thank you all, you listeners, for listening to our episode of Real World JavaScript. Philippe Silva and the English CLI, check it out and check the show notes for all the links and things that we talk to. And we'll be here every Tuesday morning.
0: Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show, and all of our shows, are available at www.realtalkjs.com, with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter, at RealtalkJS.